It's time once again for another episode of All That's Jazz, the podcast that explores everything in the world of jazz. And here now is your host, Alan Scott. Hello and welcome to another episode of All That's Jazz. Give me a kiss to build a dream on In my imagination will thrive upon that kiss mm, Sweetheart, I ask no more than this A kiss to build a dream on You're listening to the iconic and amazing talent of jazz trumpeter Louis Armstrong and his 1951 recording of A Kiss to Build a Dream On. Today's episode is all about the stuff that dreams are made of. Two years ago, we featured an episode with Ricky Riccardi, who is the Director of Research Collections at the Louis Armstrong House Museum, located in the Corona section of the Queens in New York. As a part of our Catching Up With series, we decided to reconnect with Ricky to find out what he's been up to since our last conversation, and apparently there's much to talk about. We will explore with this man who has devoted a lifetime career to all things Louis Armstrong about his winning a Grammy Award for Best Album Notes, the complete Louis Armstrong Columbia and RCA Victor Studio Sessions, 1946 to 1966 on Mosaic Records. We will also hear about the newly opened Louis Armstrong Center, located directly across the street from Armstrong's fabled home-turned-museum. Here now is that conversation with Ricky Riccardi. It's great to see you again, Ricky. Welcome back to All That's Jazz. Oh, happy to be back, Alan. Thanks for having me. You know, during our first episode, we not only learned all about the Louis Armstrong House Museum and, of course, your amazing research, your knowledge and expertise about all things Louis Armstrong, but we also, back then, two years ago, got a sneak preview of the brand new and amazing Louis Armstrong Center that was still under development when we talked last and now just opened on July the 6th of this year. And uh, it's uh, quite a monumental thing to begin with. But before we get into that, I would like to focus a little bit on you personally and a milestone achievement and recognition that you received since we last talked. And I'm almost tongue-in-cheek hesitant to mention this and bring it up but you won a Grammy Award. And the Grammy goes to... Ricky Riccardi for the complete Louis Armstrong Columbia and RCA Visitors Studio Hello. 
my name's Ricky Riccardi, not Ricky Ricardo, so thank you for not making any jokes. Um, this is surreal. Uh, thank you to the Recording Academy. Um, thank you to my fellow nominees. Anybody writing album notes in 2022, you're, do <laughs> you're doing the Lord's work. <laughs> We're not alone here. Um, I learned everything about jazz through liner notes, especially those of Dan Morgenstern, uh, Lauren Schoenberg, Robert O'Malley, Stanley Crouch, and um, uh, the great George Avakian, who was a great friend. I would like to dedicate this to George. Uh, the music that George produced for Louis Armstrong changed my life, and that's the crux of this box set. Thank you to everybody at Mosaic Records for making this happen. Thank you. <laughs> I love you. And Pops is Pops. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, no, um, um, I'm still a regular old Ricky, but it's true. You know, I was here two years ago uh, to talk about the Mosaic Records set, the complete Columbia and RCA Victor studio recordings of Louis Armstrong, uh, 1946 to 66. That was the brand new release of April of 2021, was it? <laughs> Everything's a blur. And that um, that summer, we submitted the box set to the, uh, the Grammy, so, yeah, to the Academy, and uh, including my liner note booklet, which was, I sometimes refer to it as my my other book because it was about 30,000 words. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it, it was accepted and then it was nominated, which I thought was, you know, a, a highlight of my life. But April 3rd, 2022, there we were, me and my wife on stage in Vegas. And, you know, it's things have have never been the same. I've never um, been more proud of anything. And um, I, I still haven't come down from that cloud yet. It's been quite a run. You know, it was a special moment. Uh, my wife and I watched it, uh, and watching you go up on the stage and accept the award, it, you were like a kid in a candy store. <laughs> I, had, I had nothing planned. I had no notes. I didn't write a speech. I just figured if it happened, you know, I would wing it. The only thing that was planned ahead of time, uh, in, in the weeks leading up to it, my wife would tell her coworkers tongue-in-cheek but you know oh if, if he wins i'm going up on stage if he wins i'm going up on stage and yeah that's usually not the norm but we're sitting in the ceremony and early on in the ceremony this is the afternoon ceremony you know the big stuff is at prime time but in the afternoon they give out like 70 awards and early on somebody won and they brought their partner up and as soon as that happened i turned to her and i said if this happens you're coming on stage and so that was the only thing and it you know, they call the name and you have 10 seconds to react. And it was just like, come on, we're going. And so that that was it. But just to just to be up there and, uh, you know, it was one of those life flashing before your eyes moments. So the people who came to my mind were the people who had you know, made everything possible. You know, the staff of the Louis Armstrong House Museum, the producer, George Avakian, other historians. I mentioned uh, Dan Morgenstern, Lauren Schoenberg, Stanley Crouch, Bob O'Mealy. I mentioned the producers of the set, my my kids, my dogs. I got everybody in. <laughs> it, it, if I had planned it, I don't think I I, I would have I, I would have forgotten somebody. I would have regretted something. I don't know, but I don't know, sometimes spur of the moment is the best way. Well, you did it and did it beautifully, and it was uh, just just a pure joy to watch. Uh, and I can't imagine what that would be like. And for me, on a personal note, you know, liner notes are kind of what formed the basis of my knowledge. You know, when, when I was getting into jazz back in the mid-90s, I was still buying CDs, I was still buying records, and I just lived for those booklets. And anytime I saw a big fat booklet or a box set, I knew I would, you know, this was going to be it, go track by track. And, um, you know, just to be able to write 
liner notes has always been a dream. I've done it for maybe seven or eight sets over the last decade. But to be in that category, which of course the 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 record holder in that category is the great Dan Morgenstern, who's long been probably my biggest influence as a writer and a historian and as a, just a general jazz advocate. And yeah, he's <laughs> he's one nine. And uh, you never, you know, can't count him out. He's still with us at age of 93. He might have a 10th in him. Um, but yeah, so for me, it was just like, uh, you know, everything had been building up to this moment to be on that stage. And part of that category was just surreal. The humorous part, though, is anytime I would run into somebody under the age of 30, I would tell them either I was nominated for a Grammy or eventually I told them I won a Grammy. And they would be so impressed and so excited. And then they would ask, what category? And I would say album notes, watching the expression <laughs> on their face, because there's a whole streaming generation now who has never bought a physical CD. I, my, my barber, actually, he thought it meant um, when you bought a CD back in the day and they would type up the lyrics in the booklet. Is that what you did? You, you know, you, and I said, no, no, no. <laughs> I said, this was a, a scholarly essay. And so that's when I think I started having a little fun with this thing. Like you know, To me, this was the most important category. And the most important accomplishment but it's also like you know there's a whole generation out there that's just baffled by the concept of what are liner notes what are album notes they actually give a grammy for that and you took that to uh, the right place you didn't become this insufferable person but you did a parody on that in a youtube video which is called i think i want a grammy that was so spur of the moment also because i i won the grammy on a sunday night and flew home and my daughter's birthday was Tuesday and in those 48 hours I had heard from it seemed like every person I'd ever met in my life whether it was you know high school friends and childhood acquaintances you know teachers co-workers and people were coming out of the woodwork sending messages and it was so beautiful and it was so heartwarming and my brother and I uh share a pretty warped sense of humor and we were sitting there at my my daughter's birthday and I'm just saying like man wouldn't it be funny if this like completely went to my head and, you know, and we said, we should film something. Got the family together. We got all my kids, one of my daughter's friends. We got everybody involved, uh, the dogs. And, uh, you know, we just started filming like little vignettes of, you know, me slamming the door in the face of a Girl Scout and, you know, telling the, the pizza delivery person about how I won the category. And just one thing after another. And it kind of took off. And so it, it became this whole unexpected side effect of winning a Grammy that it turned my family into a sketch comedy troupe. <laughs> we made maybe, I don't know, eight or nine videos. Um, and I still, you know, the, the last one we made was um, in January when they had the, this year, the 2023 Grammys, they gave out the new award. And so I made one almost killing off the character. And uh, I still get people asking like, when's the next one? And, well, I will encourage our listeners to uh, check it out on YouTube. Just uh, look up Ricky Riccardi and the words, I want a Grammy. I mean, it's it's so funny. And it's, it's really kind of nice and refreshing to see that you didn't take yourself seriously and, and really go over the top and be this uh, total snob about, oh, well, I want a Grammy Award. That was the whole goal because, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm pretty down to earth and you know i don't take anything for granted the fact that i won a grammy the fact that i get to do this for a living the fact that i you know i'm i'm where i am today living a life through my hero lewis armstrong and every everything is just like a dream and so to kind of inhabit a character who has just turned into a monster uh you know it's 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 it was a lot of fun it was almost therapeutic in a way 
I, I don't have any breaking news to announce today, but I will say I am in conversation with Mosaic. We might go to the well one more time. I'll, I'll, I'll just leave it there. I won't, I won't give any details. We have nothing officially approved, but we are in talks of maybe there's another Armstrong box set and another set of liner notes still to come. So uh, if, if I'm right, I might be back here in two years and we'll talk about that too. But you, know, you heard it here first. Two years previously, you as the director of research collections for the Louis Armstrong House Museum is really, in a way, a lot of what led you to this Grammy Award because of your extensive and and just absolutely incredible knowledge of Louis Armstrong. And during the time, Ricky, that we were talking about this, uh, the the museum itself, and you know the thing. I think what it opened in two thousand and three, and it was the, yeah, the original house museum. Yeah, right, correct. But that was originally and truly the house of uh, Lucille and Louis Armstrong uh, in the Queen's Corona section, and, and uh, people would would go there on a limited basis uh, because the place is not huge. And, and, but yet you had volumes and volumes of uh, all kind of archival tidbits from photos to recordings and uh, you name it. Uh, and uh, you were in search of a place to put some of this. And lo and behold, here we are two years later, the Louis Armstrong Center has opened uh, and, and it's, it's here. It, and I'll tell you, it took a lot more than two years, <laughs> because to give you the, the, the full story, we we opened the Louis Armstrong Archives at Queens College in 1994. And then, as you mentioned, the Louis Armstrong House Museum opened in Corona in 2003. And so those were the two main operations. But the House Museum was the public facing operation. People can come. They could. Yeah, we had a lot of visitors uh, who would come straight from LaGuardia Airport and they would go straight to the Armstrong House. You take a docent-led tour. You could buy something in the gift shop. The archives, which is where I started working in 2009, that was about 15 minutes away on the campus of Queens College. You needed to make an appointment to visit. You know, it was it was kind of like a behind-the-scenes thing. Serious researchers, serious scholars. And um, in 1998, there was a property across the street. Someone told me that it caught on fire and they just demolished it. And so there was an empty lot across the street from the Armstrong house and Michael Cogswell, who was the director of the house at the time. And he was also the man who opened up the Louis Armstrong archives. He had a feeling that that lot could be important one day. And so back in 1998, 99, with the help of the Louis Armstrong educational foundation, we purchased the lot and that was all in the beginning. We're just going to hold on to this lot. And all attention was focused on the restoration of the house. And so the house opens in 2003. And then Michael hits the ground running to kind of raise money for whatever this is going to be across the street. And uh, the politicians came in and Queensborough president and assemblyman. And, you know, I, we don't have to go through grant by grant. But next thing you know, uh, long story short, we had raised $26 million. And Michael started talking about we're going to build a visitor center. It's going to be the new home of the archives. We'll have an exhibit. We'll have a gift shop. And he announced it to the public on October 31st, 2007. And I was hired in October 2009. And I was told the new center should be ready in probably October 2011. Well, there were some delays <laughs> in October 2011. 
Um, well, my, my, my first book, What a Wonderful World, came out in June 2011. And if you ever read the back of that and the acknowledgments, I say, I look forward to the opening of the Louis Armstrong Center in 2013. And so uh, <laughs> it's a city project. Again, I won't bore you with the details, but every every year seemed to bring on a new challenge, a new delay, zoning variants, this and that. And uh, finally, sadly, Michael Cogswell, who kind of kicked off the whole thing, and this this whole thing was his vision. Uh, he was there for the groundbreaking in 2017, but he retired a few months later, and he passed away in April 2020. So he didn't get to see it to the finish line. And uh, Jerry Chazen, who was one of our longest-standing board members, he had put a lot of energy uh, towards the center, and he passed away last year. So a lot of people who were crucial in the planning and execution of this building did not, unfortunately, make it to the end. And then you throw a global pandemic in. So we thought we'd be open in 2020. We thought we'd be open in 2021. When I was here in 2021, I probably said it would be open in 2022. And uh, after a while, it almost became, I don't want to say comical, because we sure weren't laughing <laughs> But we would tell people, it's coming, it's opening, and people would kind of roll their eyes, like, oh, well, we've been hearing this for 25 years. But now, as of July 6th, it is open, and there is no turning back. And this is uh, interesting, because uh, just looking at the photos uh, of uh, the neighborhood, and then literally right across the street from the Louis Armstrong house is a 14,000-square-foot uh, expansion uh, that became the center. Yeah, it's it's pretty magical. And it is a state-of-the-art building. It is a beautiful building. It stands out. But at the same time, our architects, Capels Jefferson, um, they, they were the ones who designed it. They did not want to make it higher than any of the houses on the block. They did not want it to really kind of call attention to itself. When you're there in front of it, it kind of calls attention to itself. But you know, yeah. we, we definitely wanted to kind of do our best to integrate it into the neighborhood. And um, like I said, fully, fully state-of-the-art. Jason Moran curated the exhibit. There's a permanent exhibit in the main room. There's a larger gift shop. There's five cases, and four of them are considered permanent. And so uh, the fifth one we can switch out. And so the first one that, that Jason launched is actually on Lewis's collages. And it's, it's been so popular that even though it's a temporary quote-unquote exhibit, it'll probably be up for a long time because people love to see Armstrong's collages. It's a whole side of his creativity that uh, the, the people who just know his music, they might not know that he was you know, a visual artist cutting out clippings and photographs and scotch taping them all to seven-inch square reel-to-reel tape boxes. He broke it into four themes, uh, Roots, Armstrong the Ambassador, uh, and then the tools that he used, which of course has his trumpet, and then his film work. Uh, and yeah, people have been coming, and uh, they're, just, they're just blown away by the exhibit. And the house is still the crown jewel. You, know, you walk across the street, and you're walking in a house that no one has lived in since Lewis and Lucille passed away. And so it really is kind of an overwhelming experience. But Jason... It was the perfect timing. He came on board, I believe, in January 2020, right before the world kind of shut down. But uh, he is so busy. You know, everybody listening probably knows you know, Jason's touring musician, recording musician, uh, artistic director of the Kennedy Center. But then COVID hit and he had time and we have a completely digitized archive. And uh, on my job, you know, my duties the last couple of months was moving the entire archives, over 60,000 items, the world's largest archives for any single jazz musician, 
overseeing the packing, moving, the unpacking, and distribution of all of that material. It's now all out of Queens College and now all in the Louis Armstrong Center. So uh, we refer to it as the Louis Armstrong Campus because now you can come and start in the center, see the exhibit, buy something in the gift shop, walk across the street, take a tour of the house. Then next to the house is the garden, which is where we have our concerts and, and outdoor public programming. We've had dancers and uh, education components and all sorts of stuff in the garden. And then on the other side of the house was uh, the long-standing house of their neighbor, um, Selma Geraldo, who was there from 1940 until her passing tw in 2011. And when she died, she left us that house. And we got a $1.9 million grant from the city to turn that into uh, it's still going to look like a house from the outside but inside it's going to have a caterer's kitchen and office space and more more stuff uh and that construction is probably going to begin next spring and so um yeah 107th street in corona you know elvis has graceland but lewis armstrong will have this whole little campus in queens new york you know we we definitely obviously you know cater towards armstrong fans and historians and tourists and everybody else but we're doing a lot of programming for the community for the immediate community. It's a Spanish-speaking community, so everything in the building is, is translated. You know, we have an interactive touch table with a bilingual feature. And like I said, we're going to be doing a lot more for kids, you know, a lot more, you know, discussions on housing and, and really some of the other topics that are important in Corona. So we definitely, Lewis loved that community. It's why he stayed there for 28 years when he could have lived anywhere else. And, and we want to take care of that community, too. And the house is still the crown jewel. You know, you walk across the street and you're walking in a house that no one has lived in since Lewis and Lucille passed away. And so it really is kind of an overwhelming experience. And the beauty of the house is that it, it is essentially preserved as they actually lived in it in terms of color, furniture, uh, the layout. It, it looks like and feels like you're in Louis Armstrong's house. You know, you, you could you almost want to yell out, Pops, are you here? <laughs> A lot of people have said that they feel his spirit, they feel his energy. One of the most common reactions to the house tour is people feel like Lewis and Lucille just stepped out for a minute. Like maybe they're out grocery shopping and we're just kind of walking around the house until they get back. Uh, and so, you know, we are so lucky because not every jazz musician has this. I mean, there there are two John Coltrane houses that are doing wonderful work, but, you know, other people lived in there after Coltrane left in you know, one in philly one in, in long island and so they're doing their best to kind of keep coltrane's values and it's it's wonderful we support them all the way but no one has lived in the house since the armstrongs so that's part one then there's armstrong the archivist you know the fact that he was making reel-to-reel -reel tapes and making scrapbooks and writing down these stories of his life and documenting everything and you know, uh, collecting photographs and saving all of his big band arrangements in his library. So in many ways, we're the ones who are now making it happen. We're there every day. You know, we've got this building open. We're there for the public. But really, without Lewis and Lucille's vision, you know, Lewis creating this archive, saving everything, Lucille having the house declared a National Historic Landmark, leaving it to the city of New York when she died. You know, we're, we're in this position today because of the decisions Lewis and Lucille made 40, 50 years ago. So is this now what might be considered, or at least in your view, the, the icing on the cake that solidifies Lewis Armstrong's place? 
and legacy in the music of jazz because there were critics at from time to time about certain aspects of uh, Mr. Armstrong, but uh, frankly, there's no denying the man is an icon and he is uh, essentially almost an immortal uh, in, in jazz music. I've long said, uh, I might have said this two years ago, but I think it bears repeating that I still think we're kind of at the beginning of the Armstrong Renaissance because when he died in 1971, it was front page news. They stopped the news on TV and it was on every newspaper around the world and it was a big deal. But the first article I found in the New York Times about a month after he died was kind of this whole, uh, you know, using Louis Armstrong as kind of a cautionary tale. Like, you know, uh, you know, we, we mourn Louis Armstrong, but remember, he was a genius when he was a young man. And then watching him get lost the you know tentacles of commercialism and become a clown you know we shouldn't let this happen again and so that was kind of out there and as late as 1983 a biography of armstrong came out it's one of the most mean-spirited books i've ever read about how armstrong failed his own talent and he was just insatiable and his craving for applause and this and that and again i found reviews from 83 where people kind of shrugged and said yeah that sounds about right and to me the whole thing shifted uh when after Lucille died and everything was left in the house, the first person to have access was Gary Giddens. Gary Giddens was given access to all the archival materials and the house, and he put together a book, Satchmo, and a documentary of the same name. And that was the first time Armstrong's words were really used heavily as his private words, his private thoughts. And at that point, you could see the Armstrong scholarship start to change. And so then five years later, this Winton and Jazz Lincoln Center doing an Armstrong continuum there's Smithsonian doing a traveling exhibit. And five years after that, you have Ken Burns Jazz making Lewis the star. And you have the House Museum opening. And I've come along with my two going on three books. And there's been all this different research and scholarship. And now there's a Lewis Armstrong Center. 50 years it took. <laughs> you know, Lewis Armstrong died in July of 71. So 52 years. Um, so my prediction is we're at the beginning. So, you know, if you want to book me now for 52 years from today, I really think you know, uh, it's going to be who are the greats. It's going to be Mozart. It's going to be Shakespeare. It's going to be Louis Armstrong. There's going to be new works. There's going to be people coming to the center, new documentaries, new films, new books, new writings, new compositions. And, uh, you know, it will all have stemmed, like I said earlier, from Louis and Lucille, you know, making this whole thing possible. And so we're, he, he is in a much better place today. I mean, in the last year alone, opening the building, the documentary Louis Armstrong's Black and Blues came out Apple TV last year. There's just been such a kind of shift in thought on Armstrong and you know just his relevance and everything else. And I still think it's just going to continue and continue and continue. And he will always be relevant and he will always provide inspiration and fodder for scholarship, uh, for musicians, for historians, for anybody interested in the 20th century. We now have the right place for the right man. And, of course, people can uh, certainly learn more about it by going to the Louis Armstrong Center uh, website. Uh, is that correct? Yeah, our website is lewisarmstronghouse.org, and that has you know biographical material on Louis, but it also will tell you about the house. It'll tell you about the center. Uh, you can buy your tickets in advance. We have time tours now, and so we do recommend coming. If you are coming, buy your ticket in advance. Make sure you have a spot guaranteed. And then my pandemic project was uh, 
which I'm still working on, but we started a virtual exhibit site called virtualexhibits.lewisarmstronghouse.org. That's the, the URL. The site is called That's My Home. And I've done, I, God, I lost track, probably 140, 150 posts just of stuff from our archives. You know, um, photo essays, going through the collages, going through the tapes, going through scrapbooks and making all of that available to the public. But with me as kind of as your guide, taking it page by page and tape by tape and explaining what's going on. When was this made? Where did you find this? Sharing some audio, sharing some video. And so, uh, you know, if you can't make it to Queens, those two websites will at least get you the essence. But, uh, you know, now with the new center, you, you have to find a way. It's, it's a magical place. It's, it's two for one. So right now, uh, as we get our sea legs, we're open Thursday, Friday, and Saturday from 11 a.m. until 4 p.m. So three days a week, five hours a day. And your ticket starts out at the center, and then you'll take a, t a tour of the house across the street. So the, the house is still, in our view, kind of like the crown jewel. It's still the one experience you can't replicate anywhere else. But now, even if you've taken the house tour in the past, you'll have a whole new experience. We've had some people in the exhibit, I think the record so far in the first week, somebody spent about an hour and a half there. Because the, the exhibit has videos. Every case has about an eight or nine minute video. And then there's an interactive touch table where you can sit there for five minutes or you can sit there for an hour. But there's all curated stories that Jason and uh, the staff put together. Lewis in Africa, Lewis in Collage, Lewis and Lucille, Lewis and Ella, Lewis and Lil, Lewis and King Oliver. And you can sit there and scroll and, you know, see archival assets and listen to tapes and watch videos right there in the exhibit room. So you can really make a day of it. And Definitely keep checking our website, checking social media, because we are planning uh, a programming calendar. We have the 75-seat jazz room, which is also in the center. It's a beautiful red room with a, uh, a drum set. We're going to have a piano in there. And starting this fall, we're going to have uh, regular concerts. We're still putting it together, how often and what day is and who are the artists. But, um, you know, you'll be able to time it where you can really make a day of it. Come to Queens, spend time in the center, see a concert, walk across the street, have dinner, you know, see a Mets game, whatever it is. But, uh, you know, you'll, it'll definitely be uh, a great experience. Oh, I would uh, dare say that it truly would be. Uh, it's a, from what you're describing and, and as I see it, truly a special place to learn about a special man, that man being Louis Armstrong Satchmo Pops. It's what he deserves. That's that's how I like to, to think. You know, if anybody deserves this kind of treatment, a house as a museum, a national historic landmark, a state of the art center, it's Louis Armstrong. Well, in closing, I have to ask this question of you, Ricky, because you've essentially devoted your life, uh, in many ways, to Louis Armstrong. Uh, between your research and everything that you've gathered in the way of archival uh, objects and stories and you've written about him you have liner notes about him you have an award to your credit uh, through a <laughs> grammy uh, association uh so is, is this maybe a, a time and a place when ricky riccardi says my work here is done <laughs> i've realized that it'll never be done because i thought i had that time and place back in 2011 uh be because I always knew I wanted to write a book about Lewis's later years, and um, it was my master's thesis at Rutgers. 
And then I graduated from Rutgers in 2005, and the only work I could find, I became a house painter for four years. My father was a painting contractor, and at first it was kind of like, well, I'll help the old man out for a couple of months until I get a job. It was four long years of painting houses, sweating, working outside, the whole thing. And then I hired an agent to get this book deal done, and it was rejected year after year after year. And then I started a blog, which nobody read in the beginning. And the whole time, for some reason, I was kind of calm and kind of cool and like, oh, this is important. It'll happen eventually. And then it was like dominoes. We got the, the book deal with Pantheon, and then I got the job uh, as archivist for the Louis Armstrong Archives. And I remember in 2011, the book came out, and I was sitting there at my desk, and I just turned uh, 31 years old. And I said, my work here is done. You know, I had two goals in life, the full-time job, and, uh, you know, put a book out, and now I can coast. <laughs> And honestly, the next 12 years were actually the most action-packed years. You know, I mean, Armstrong's got me to Italy, to England, to Brazil. Uh, these were the years I produced all the CDs and wrote all the liner notes and obviously the Grammy. That documentary I mentioned, Louis Armstrong's Black and Blues, I was a consultant on that. I teach an Armstrong course now every year since 2015 at Queens College. I teach for Jazz at Lincoln Center, Armstrong. Um, I'm working on the third Armstrong book right now, and Lincoln Center already has me for seven sessions booked this October, and I mentioned there might be another mosaic set. So I have learned the hard way, but also the, uh, you know, the very satisfying way that my work will never be done. There will always be people who want to learn about Louis Armstrong, young people, old people, you know, anybody in between. Um, if they want to learn, I am happy to teach. I'm happy to talk. I'm happy to guide. And so as long as I'm able, uh, you'll know where to find me right there in Corona, Queens. You know, probably talking about Louis Armstrong. <laughs> well, I will tell you, Ricky Riccardi, that I appreciate the fact that uh, you've given us an opportunity to catch up with you. And uh, we're going to look for now great things from you in the future because your work truly is not done. And thank you for being our guest on All That's Jazz once again. Alan, it's always a pleasure. And like I said, you know, we have this nice two-year gap. Um, we'll do it again because right now my next book is due to come out in 2025 and I might have this other box set in 2025 and who knows where the Armstrong Center will be. So I'll be back to catch up again. Can't wait to do it again and can't wait to see you in Corona. Yes, I think to myself What a wonderful Thanks for listening to this episode of All That's Jazz with Ricky Riccardi, the Director of Research Collections at the Louis Armstrong House Museum. We'd like to thank Ben Sedrin for the use of Mr. P's Shuffle as our theme song. And visit us again next time for another interesting conversation on All That's Jazz. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a five-star rating on the streaming service you use. All That's Jazz is available on every major streaming app, including Podbean, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, as well as Facebook and online at allthatsjazz.net.